Welcome to the Business of Learning, the Learning Leaders Podcast from Training Industry. Welcome back to the Business of Learning. I'm Michelle Eggleston-Schwartz, Editor-in-Chief here at Training Industry. And I'm Sarah Gallo, a Senior Editor. Before we begin today's episode, here's a brief message from our sponsor, Training Industry Courses, Building Diversity and Inclusion Training Programs Workshop. As a learning leader, you play a key role in driving diversity, equity, and inclusion in your organization. But building DNI programs that go beyond reactionary, surface-level solutions isn't easy. Training Industry Courses' newest workshop, Building Diversity and Inclusion Training Programs, will arm you with the tools and skills you need to create and deliver DNI programs that make an impact. To learn more about the program, visit the show notes for this episode or browse the course page on trainingindustry.com. Building inclusivity can't wait. Learn more about how you can lead the change today. If you're listening to this podcast, you're likely a learning and development professional or in a similar role focused on improving human performance. So you know more than anyone that training, especially DEI training, is often seen as a check the box event. But you also know that learning has the power to drive change, especially when it's made accessible to learners from diverse groups or when its goal is to improve DEI across the organization. So in today's episode, we're going to dive into what we really mean by equitable learning and how L&D can help drive a more inclusive future of work. With us, we have Anson Green, Senior Manager of Economic Opportunity at Tyson Foods, Lori Spicer-Robertson, Vice President of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Saks Fifth Avenue, and Founder and Chief Joymaker at Wonder, and Elena Doyle, Learning and Development Director at Wells Fargo, to learn more. Anson, Lori, and Elena, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Excited to be here. Very thrilled. Yes, thank you for the invite. Yes, welcome. We are so excited to have this conversation with each of you today and hearing about your experiences and background. And so to kick things off, why don't you each explain what diversity, equity, inclusion means to you and how are you working to foster it in your organization? I'll go ahead and begin. I think for for me personally, and then of course at Tyson, the big area that we've really wanted to foster is economic opportunity uh, and wage lift and really advancement. And so we've really, you know, our company consists of about 121,000 workers across the United States alone. Um, we have, of course, locations all over the world. And 60 to 70% of our workers are immigrants and refugees. And uh, of that group, you'll see about 12% of that group are non-educated, meaning they've never had education in their home country. And then the top 10% of that immigrant and refugee group have college degrees, but they're languishing in lower skilled jobs because they lack English skills. So we really try to target opportunities, not only for English as a second language and digital literacy and other skills, but also career development programs to help uh, actually move them to a more substantial position within the company and, of course, raise their household income. So for us, it's largely tied around uh, economic opportunity for the individuals. I think in my world and for both of my hats, diversity, equity and inclusion is definitely around people 
and understanding that there's a value and difference. We spend a lot of time preparing our leaders as well as uh, our colleagues that there's a value and difference and that it's not a liability. We talk a lot about culture ad versus culture fit um, and helping us have new learnings and unlearnings so that we can adapt and move forward and create a culture really where people feel like they belong. I think the other is access and opportunity. We spend a lot of time breaking down equity and understanding how does it fold into our policies, our processes, our procedures, especially as you look at the talent life cycle of any employee that works with us. And so as you think about diversity, equity, inclusion for us, it's it's heavily um, around the type of environment and workplace we're creating for individuals that have different backgrounds and who are diverse and loosely, whatever that means for a person. All right. And then I'll kind of round us out with, you know, Wells Fargo is uh, heavily regulated. It's the banking industry. So, of course, we value and definitely promote uh, diversity, equity, inclusion in all aspects. And what I'll talk about is more from a business perspective. So we think that success comes from inviting and incorporating diverse perspectives. And we also feel that DNI results in permanent meaningful change for all employees and customers alike. So we have roughly two, over 200,000 employees across the globe as well. Um, so a lot of, you know, differing components there. And then we've also I- increased our, for- our focus on diversity and inclusion by making it a part of our behavioral expectations. And so those are things that, you know, we expect our employees to demonstrate in their work. And then most recently, we've hired someone to an executive leader to report directly to the CEO, because it's definitely one of those things that we focus on for sure. That's great. Thanks for sharing, everyone. I think it'd be helpful if we could maybe break down some of those challenges that today's organizations are really seeing around DEI. What what are those challenges and, and how are they kind of showing up in today's work environments? I'll start. Some of the challenges you think about DEI in in terms of learning for us is just helping people understand that when you're trying to bring people along in the journey of diversity, equity, and inclusion, you have to meet them where they are. If your approach is that you have to force feed learning on someone or force someone to change and be different, as you can imagine, no one really likes change unless they change themselves. Uh, unless it has a million dollars tied to it. And usually that's not the case. And so uh, you have to bring people along the journey with you and meet them where they are. And so for us, restructuring people's thinking that DEI is a force-fed approach, right? That we want you along the journey, that we're not approaching this with something is wrong with you. When I first came, I remember people saying, you know, I don't want this to be people poking holes at what's wrong with me. That's the case. And I already shut down. I'm like, that's not the work. If the work is to poke holes, then something's wrong with all of us. We all have our own challenges and issues and opportunities. And so for us, it's really starting with meeting people where they are and then doing so by building grounding for uh, the work that we do. We have to make sure people are grounded in what does diversity, equity, inclusion mean for this place, this organization, because it means something different to every single person. And so our CEO really started with our board, but our board and our CEO led the, the discovery phase to ensure that everyone in the company knew what it meant for us. And so that we could then build from that and how does it relate to everyone's 
business functions are center of excellence uh, and the work that they do collectively as as well as an individual. So for us, I think that has been the challenge to overcome is just reframing individuals thinking about diversity, equity, inclusion, how it ties to their continuous learning uh, development, but also how it ties back to their work. Those are great points. I would add to the point of knowing what they don't know and meeting people where they are that I work, you know, and collaborate with other uh, businesses in kind of areas where there's large proportions of underskilled workers. And I think part of the areas that I see challenges are is companies sometimes don't know where they have gaps in terms of access to sometimes some fundamental things. For example, we see a lot of, in the manufacturing area, you know, we see lots of innovation in the last 20 or 30 years, which has really accelerated, I would say, you know, in the last five. But the questions of to what extent are that diverse workforce, especially limited English workforce, to what extent are they prepared to kind of uh, assimilate into a more automated environment or an environment with more technology or even simple things like uh, can they access human resource systems online that have been migrated online, a lot of self-service. And so the people, you know, sometimes in, implementing those systems aren't the ones working on the front end with the workers that are, you know, trying to use those systems. And so I have seen over and over these gaps especially in the area of computer digital literacy, where uh, systems get rolled out and no one ever asked the question, to what extent could the workforce log into the system or use the system because they may not have the digital skills. And so I find it exciting sometimes to see these gaps because it's just kind of amazing. But then you reflect back and you think, well, definitely I could see how people got there because the lines of communication and meeting people where they are, as Lori was saying, is something that you've got to really be vigilant at and ask the right questions. And if leadership is making you know big dollar decisions on new technologies or automation, they really do need to make sure they're getting down to kind of the frontline supervisor level groups to determine to what extent those kind of innovations can be deployed. Yeah. And now I'll kind of round this out again. Uh, so I think some of the challenges for sure is you know, we recognize that we continue to make progress and we know that, you know, in advancing D&I in our work, and we know that there's also more that needs to be done. Um, and so I think that a lot of the things that, you know, many organizations and business leaders face is making sure that the fundamental concepts of like justice, equity, and inclusion and diversity are thoroughly supported and embedded throughout the company in a way that drives that meaningful change. Even when, you know, the business needs to shift focus, so they might shift focus. And so I think that from, you know, as learning and development professionals, we can help meet those challenges by offering training that helps to drive that change. So that's all I'd say about that. That's such a great point. There's definitely more that needs to be done. Kind of expanding on what you were saying, I'd be interested to hear, Lori or Anson, anything else that you can share? Like, how can learning and development really help to solve these very real challenges that you, you've mentioned? I would say, you know, again, my perspective comes from an employer with a very large, lower-skilled workforce. But I think 
learning and development leaders often just because of their training, often uh, because they come from higher education, like I do, sometimes they have not really thought of their models in terms of accessibility across the spectrum of skills and abilities. And the initial assessment of a workforce to be able to be successful when it comes to uh, learning and development opportunities that would promote and, and help individuals um, re- not only retain their jobs, but grow in their jobs is something I think still just the industry has a long way to go in, in terms of really that full full assessment of down to literacy levels and English levels and digital skills. I just see over and over that it's it's sometimes that lower skilled workforce that isn't having the equitable access to training opportunities, even though they may have, of course, great tenure at their business, great skills to offer. We find uh, so many in our Tyson plants, so many foreign trained professionals that have had full careers in their native countries have come to America and now they're in frontline processing jobs, although they have a college degree, which might just seem amazing to people, but it's very true. And for us, it's about how do we tackle and tap into that great value of having not only someone with great skills and being able to grow them, but also the bilingual and bicultural qualities that they bring to the company and and building those into uh, higher skilled positions into more levels of decision making. So it uh, sometimes is the story of like the untapped workforce within the company that because I think sometimes our, our education systems and in, in public ed, which trickle into, you know, training and development, kind of have these biases almost uh, in terms of like how they're built and how they're structured, who has access. And we definitely see this at Tyson. We work lockstep with our public schools and colleges. And sometimes, you know, access points for lower skilled workers into training programs really aren't accessible. But, the, but it's possible. And so I think it's creating that possibility for the workforce that we really hope to find great uh, value, not just in terms of equity, but also in terms of bringing new ideas and new talents and new perspectives to our leadership. For us, I think similar to what Anson shared, was tailoring our learning platform for each department or division. Uh, we have a distribution center now. It's called the Fulfillment Center. But as we had built out program, we learned some gaps that were in our processes and that in the past, our distribution center, there was one person that we had a heavily, heavy population that was Persian, but also Hispanic. Well, one employee had taken it upon herself to translate everything that we had given that team. There's no reason for that. We can hire a translator who can develop our content to make sure it's applicable to whoever is in that department. So that's one of the small ways that we tried to bring the team along. Um, I think the other thing that we did is we would change the training based on areas and not change it in a way that was beneficial for everyone, just change it in a way that was easier for the team to disseminate the information. And so we took a long, hard look and said, how do we give the same type of information and maybe even improve the nuances in certain places so that everyone walks away on the same page as we continue on this journey. And we spent probably six to nine months last year developing our learning platform and making sure diversity, equity, inclusion was laced throughout it. Uh, And for every department, our Canadian team, our team that's in Bangalore, India, 
our team that is in Laverne, Tennessee, that leads our distribution center everywhere, not just um, focused on New York. And so I think that was just different for us as a company. We hadn't done that before, but the employees were so appreciative of it. They felt included, right? That's the work that we do. They felt included. Our learning and uh, development team was proud of the work. And so now we have this 18 month continuous learning platform that is tailored for each one of our teams and departments so that people can walk along this journey with us and that we're all speaking the same language and uh, singing from the same book. So it's exciting for us. Love that. And I think too, for us, you know, we did something similar because you really can't focus on, you know, racism uh, in an area where everyone looks the same, you know? And so I think that that was a long, hard look just to kind of tack on to what you both said. So we took a long, hard look at that. But I would say for the most part at Wells, we try, or at least, you know, when I, we worked on the strategy, the DEI training strategy, we wanted to align with the company's DEI strategy um, and making sure that we did that. And, you know, what I have my team to do is to really form the strong partnerships with the DEI leader, because again, we're not all in the same group. We work hand in hand with those individuals, the DNI leader, the consultants, and that diverse segment organization to just make sure that we're aligning together and that we can market things together. So maybe if it's some training that we have that has to do with maybe women's history or something like that, then we may align some some training with the key messages that goes out that way. And then by doing this, then diversity content can be developed to support those organizational pillars. Because again, we're aligning with the company strategy. Definitely. As Sarah mentioned earlier, DEI training is oftentimes treated as a check the box activity or a reactionary event with something that unfolded. In both of these cases, DEI training is unlikely to achieve the outcomes we're hoping for. How can L&D and DEI leaders make sure their programs go beyond lip service and drive meaningful and measurable change? One of the key things or a few things that they can do. So L&D and DEI leaders can make sure that they establish measurable goals. And this is what I'm always asking for is what are the metrics, right? Being intentional about the needs to meet those goals. For example, if you believe a change can be made in inclusive behaviors, then training could be developed and offered for managers and employees that is followed up by a level three evaluation. So I'm trying to make this a bit more practical for L&D folks to learn more about the change in the behaviors. And then the same could be said about hiring for diverse talent. You're pinpointing or you're being intentional about giving that training for recruiting and hiring managers on demand so that they can go back and refer to it in in that moment to ensure that the organization has an uptick in hiring diverse talent, because we believe on both sides that that's what's needed. From time to time, I think that, which is, this question is a good question. We have a tendency in L&D and in D&I to maybe focus on things from a social perspective. But as I'm starting to learn a lot about this construct and and working in this space and things like that, um, we have to be more focused on metrics and then making sure that we're focusing those solutions to accompany the whatever change that we're trying to accomplish. 
I would add to that that one of the things that, you know, it's kind of lip service, but it's also helping individuals see the work that needs to be done in their particular context. And what I mean by that is, is one thing I have run across is that when you go into a Tyson plant and, and other businesses and similar industries, people will look around and say, well, we're already very diverse. You know, we have 30 different countries represented uh, here in 25 different languages, which is often the case in a Tyson plant. And so the question is less about like the profile of the workforce and more about like the opportunities to access training, opportunities to participate equitably, retention rates in those programs for individuals, finding ways to help them uh, address uh, barriers outside of work that might be particular to their circumstances so that they have equal access to just benefiting from employment. So I, th I think sometimes specific to the industry for sure, but definitely even down to, you know, the business locations about what, what are the right metrics to, to kind of find change and then pay attention to that because it, I, I have seen it so often that people get complacent and they think, you know, when the term DEI was coined, we had already arrived. And I'm like, no, it's not that way. It's not because of your, your profile and your workforce. It's to what extent are, you know, retention rates. It's, it's to what extent are people having access to training? Are they accessing their HR systems? You know, things like that. So there's some different ways to kind of target the measures and, um, and get people to think about things differently. Because I think the complacency is as much of a threat as the lip services. I'll add for us in terms of lip service and our CEO led this effort because he knew our, he knows our team far better than I has been there for 25 years. His thought was that he needed to lead it. He needed to lead the conversation and express the value of why we were creating this learning platform and why it was intentional to make sure DEI was connected and tied to it. We started our foundation building, as we called it, with uh, cultural intelligence. And so he and his leadership team all went through it. It was a four-hour session. Never before had our leaders or SACs ever gone through anything that long. And so I think that alone for our employees was a remarkable shift that, one, we were entering into the space where learning was going to take our time and that it was important enough that we needed to give time to it. So he led that conversation. And then, of course, his peers on our C-suite of leadership team followed suit and shared that with their teams as well. So I think that set the tone for the value and how important it was for everyone in the company. Um, and then people were excited. They hadn't had any training probably since before COVID or no formal training like this. And so everyone was eager to uh, be a part of it. So I think Ours is a little bit easier to get over the lip service. One, our CEO led in. Everybody was hungry for new learning. Now, who knows if the hunger for new learning was because I think the person next to me needs some better training. That's usually the case versus I myself need some learning and education. So <laughs> either way, it worked for us. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, that's great to hear that your CEO is really leading that change because I think that's something we've heard from a lot of leaders in the industry that you know, it really does start at the top. So that's great to, to really see that in action. 
I'd love to kind of talk a little bit more about that accountability factor, which I think is also important in making sure that that we're not treating DEI training like a check the box event. How can organizations really remain accountable in this sort of long-term commitment to driving change in their organizations? For us, our learning was also tied to our dashboards and scorecards. So Elena mentioned metrics and making sure, I think it was tied to strategy and goals. For us, it was. And so the way we monitored and measured that along the way was, is it showing up in our leaders' scorecard, right? How, what's the traction looking like for them as the individual, but also the people that report up to them. And as time goes on, that's tied to our performance, rewards, and bonus and benefit structure. And so I think when things are tied to dollars and cents, people pay a lot of attention to it, but it's been helpful for us also just to measure accountability, right? I mean, if you didn't have that structure in place, it was harder to keep track of it. So for us, that was an easy shoe in. And then for us, very similar to what Lori said We are making it a part of our business reviews. And I think just to kind of expand on that and the importance of that is that that wasn't maybe the case or it wasn't as prevalent as it is now. And then the other piece was looking at it from kind of tying it together, you know, the business reviews piece, but also making leaders accountable to advancing DE&I. So the CEO and his directs made some very specific commitments to us as employees to definitely drive that. And then, you know, sometimes leaders can also go back, I think to Anson's point in the previous response, you're going back to revisit these things so that you don't become uh, complacent. And, you know, L&D can really help in delivering content that supports that approach. Those are great responses. I would add that this is kind of an alternative way that I don't think we knowingly got into holding ourselves accountable in these areas, but most of the work that we do, as I mentioned previously, is done through alliances with, uh, in our local communities where our plants are with colleges and schools and community-based organizations. And it's actually kind of those alliances also that hold us accountable and keep us moving forward because we have to get on a phone call and talk about the work as a team. And it's not something that, you know, if we just lose track internally here, we still got to get on a phone call and and we got to tell them where we are in a process or implementing something. So I think that that kind of partnership piece, which I'm a, a huge fan of these local alliances, it has all these kind of multiplier effects. And one of them is just kind of keeping us focused uh, and helping us kind of do the work, but also to kind of pay attention to this work. And when we talk to our leaders You know, it's not just my team and what we're doing, but it's about the 56 other schools that we're working with to do this across the country. And so that kind of gets everybody's attention and lets everybody know that, you know, we're accountable to the local communities where those schools and those plants and businesses are and those workers and and their, their families. Definitely. Those are all great points. Thank you all for sharing. I think it would be helpful to look at more of those individual behaviors that we and our learners can take to support DEI in the workplace. Since we know that allyship is critical, can you both maybe share some examples of what effective allyship looks like in today's business environment? I will jump in. Uh, It's funny, I just had this conversation with some other 
diversity, equity, and inclusion, access, belonging, all the words, togetherness, uh, <laughs> colleagues. And we were listening to a panel of seasoned professionals who've been in this space for over 40 years. And one of them answered and said, I don't really think the needle is moving. And so, of course, it struck all of us because one, we're in this space, we're doing this work, but they're also been in the space for 40 years. So if they don't think the needle is moving, there's so many questions there as to why they're still here in this space. But all of that to say is what came out of it, it was interesting that it was the more seasoned professionals in a conversation with younger DEI professionals, as they call it. And the younger group said, I think what's missing is action. Like we know, we know all the things to do. We have, we're following the same tools decade after decade, year after year, but the real piece that's missing is action. And somewhere we've got to really educate people on what allyship is and how it shows up in our workplaces and train people on the value and importance of that so that we can see the needle move so that in the next 10 years, we're not talking about, we haven't seen any change happen. Now, I do think that person's response was extreme. There has been change. It's just been small incremental change. And that's like with anything that deals with uh, people, it doesn't happen quickly. And so you have to leave room for time and adjustment and for people to change and evolve in their own space. And so I think the question really around allyship is helping people understand what it is, but also why there is value in it. One of our leaders, not in this current position, but in a prior position for me, and it was a white leader. And he said, to me, allyship is getting individuals who have not had to change, who have not had issues in the workplace to care. And he's like, when I care, then I unfold a world of other people who can help change and move this needle along. But he's like, if I don't care and I'm sitting at the leadership table, it's going to be very hard for women or people of color or those from the LGBTQ plus community or for those who are um, of disability community that to see change happen. So he's like, for me, it needs to start with me changing and understanding why it's important. So long answer to get to. I think making allyship clear for people and why it's important and value. I would say one of the things that I think really helps support allyship in our model at Tyson, and I think this kind of existed, kind of grew out of some other objectives. But, you know, when one of the things I've learned is when we work with our individual plants across the U.S., we try to bring a wide variety of people to those discussions from the plant And we have on staff at our plants, a chaplain program where we have a chaplain that acts as kind of a social service worker in the plant. We have community liaisons that represent the largest kind of community uh, immigrant communities in the plant. So there'll be a Burmese liaison or Vietnamese liaison, but making sure, and then we'll have the plant leadership, human resources, but you never know where your allies are until you uh, broaden that discussion. You know, sometimes you kind of default to say, well, I'm a learning and development person. I'm going to talk to my peer at the local office that's a learning and development person. But sometimes that may not be the best, you know, ally there to kind of build build that network, but also to bring those perspectives forward. So I've really seen that, you know, uh, broadening the, the, the group and maybe it narrows down from the initial discussions, but you never know where those champions are until you kind of talk to a wide variety of people, especially when you're working in a, 
in you know a, a real diffused situation like I am, where we're dealing with plants all across the country. Uh, you just don't know those those folks firsthand. You don't know what the dynamics are in the plant, and so challenging. You know, your from your initial discussion, I always challenge my team like invite four other people to that meeting, find their positions on the org chart on you know on Outlook, and bring them in and see how we can start to build that dynamic and see where we need to do training and where we need to build some capacity and awareness and then see where it goes from there in terms of uh, the champions that will help carry some of these efforts forward. Yeah, both good responses and tying back to what Lori said about the action piece. And so at Wells, we define an ally as a person of one social identity group who stands up in support of members of another And so if you're a part of a dominant identity group, the important thing for you to be able to do is to advocate and support a non-dominant group. So an example of that might be speaking up for someone when they're not in the room. So allies speak up when maybe there's a policy change that comes about and you can see that this will definitely (laughs) exclude an individual from the non-dominant group from, you know, that opportunity, whatever that may be, a career development, training, or something like that. Yeah, those are all great. I definitely, we've definitely heard that allyship, you know, it really is an action word. It's a verb. So it's great to hear you all kind of reiterating that and seeing how training can help. Well, at this point, I think we can definitely say that, you know, advancing equitable work and learning is like we mentioned earlier, it's a journey and it's not a destination. And we we've kind of touched on the fact that it can be frustrating when it takes, you know, a long time to see change. And sometimes it's small and incremental. What tips do you all have for our listeners who are kind of struggling and, and maybe feeling a little bit burned out along the way? I would say, the thing that's helped helped me out, and I, and I, I think it's uh, something I, I didn't purposely do, but I think it's, it's, a, it's a good practice to consider is even though you may not feel like you have the time to do it sometimes, getting involved in peer groups, much like this group here on the phone call. I, you know, I sit on a, uh, several different groups that are discussing these issues from a wide variety of industries, just like we have represented here today. And sometimes, you know, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine that's in the healthcare industry, and they thought it was odd to talk to somebody. You know, I, I challenged him to go talk with somebody in, in a different industry, and it just didn't make any sense to them at first. But I said, you just never, you know, different sectors have really different ways of tackling things, different dynamics. But there's really more in similar uh, across industries than I think there is different. And so I find that I get kind of fueled by hearing these new ideas that I have to learn, like I have to think, okay, how do I take that structure out of healthcare and do something in, you know, a a Tyson plant with it? Because I really like it. It's attractive to me, but it doesn't immediately fit. So it it kind of activates my creative side to kind of build and think. And, And that gives me energy, I think, to push things forward, even though ostensibly you would look and say, I don't have time for that extra meeting on my calendar. And it's like keeping that time, just sometimes justifying it with your boss is like, yeah, I'm in this group that doesn't seem related to what I'm doing because of these other things. But I think that's that's something that has worked for me is to kind of diversify my inputs. And then it gives me this kind of need to kind of creatively think and activate that part of my work. Just to kind of piggyback off of what Anson is saying, 
Yeah, I think I'm on the younger side, as Lori mentioned previously, of the DNI work. And so um, I'm excited. And I think that advancing equity can be that. And so it does give you this opportunity to be positive and have a lot of energy, but also optimism and be creative and have some courage. And so to Anston's point, it's about learning these different inputs. That is what really energizes me as well. If it's no more than just going to some sort of um, virtual uh, conference or something like that to meet new people and hear about just so many different things. But I would say to kind of bring it down a little further is why are you invested in this journey? Um, why are you doing this? So going back and revisiting that might be something else that you want to you know, think about. It feels great to help other people. And that, I think, is what energizes me. It's helping those who might not have an opportunity by offering them maybe a mentorship or a development opportunity or just friendship um, and then being intentional about, you know, what you're looking for from a change while you're, I guess, waiting for that, you know, the long term changes to take effect. Well, I love this question. I've been doing talks on this all year because people come to me consistently about burnout. And my friends tell me I have a therapy personality, even though I'm not a therapist. So I've come up with this acronym is what I share with others. It's called BLISS. And it starts with B for boundaries. Like doing this work can be difficult. And so you have to create boundaries, especially for us coming out of a virtual world where everyone was home. You know, people are like, you're at home. So I call you at seven o'clock because you're available to me. Um, I'm actually not. So creating boundaries for yourself. Uh, I think like Anson said, the L is for leadership. So surrounding yourself with leaders who can share best practices, who you're comfortable. Uh, you have a safe and brave space or platform where you can talk about what's keeping you up at night. And then also who you can celebrate wins with. Uh, the I is for impact. Most people got into this work. Uh, their why, as Elena mentioned, was that they want to be impactful, both internally and externally from their company. And then the S is really around success. It's taking the time to celebrate the wins, large or small, because if you're doing this work, whether it's DEI and I have a background in learning development, you're going, right? You're always on to the next. And so finding those times to pause and celebrate yourself or your team or the company for whatever it was that you were able to accomplish. And then lastly is sustainability. You've got to find periods of rest that there is a true harmony between uh, work and rest. And you have to find what works best for you. Mine is every quarter I check out whether that's a real big vacation or a staycation, or I just learn how to take a nap. It's still a work in progress. But for me, it's around changes bliss, is what I call it. So Boundaries, leadership, impact, success, and sustainability. Love that. That's such a great way <laughs> to think about it because managing Absolutely. burnout is, is so <laughs> necessary in today's workplace. Yeah, it is. And it's tough. I think it's the world has shifted, so it's getting harder and harder. And there's all kinds of things cropping up in social environments that influence what you're doing internally that didn't, to me, that didn't show up in the workplace before. So the walls have come down. Definitely. I'd love to circle back um, and talk about a point you actually made earlier, Lori, about your workforce wanting to 
see action, like DEI training mm-hmm. needs to be actionable. Mm-hmm. And so really in order to drive real change, um, DEI training does need to be actionable. So kind of after today's episode, what's one basic step our listeners can take to begin moving the needle at their organizations? I think to get involved, right? Don't sit on the sidelines or be peripheral. I think uh, for years, people have said that's somebody else's work. Like I'll let them do that in the workplace that I don't have to do that. Whoever's leading learning and development or who's leading diversity, equity, inclusion, they'll figure out and solve the problem. I think what we've learned in the last two years is that we are the solution to the problem. Everyone in the workplace is really the solution of how we show action and move the needle forward. And so identifying what those small ways are. If it is um, you sign up, because we also get volunteers to facilitate our content. So if you want to learn more, uh, I always encourage people, you don't need to be perfect or have the answers. If you go through the training as a facilitator, it's the best breeding ground for you to learn more. So Raise your hand to be a facilitator if you're not part of an employee resource group or business resource group or affinity group, whatever your company calls them. Definitely get engaged because they are internal communities where you get to learn more about yourself, but also the people who uh, share an affinity in those groups. I think if there is a council for you to join, also become involved with that. And then our other one is we have a service group for our employee volunteerism and giving. And I'd say more than anything that has given exposure to our employees because it shows what you're doing in the workplace, but how it shows outside the workplace, right? Like we just launched a new career coaching series for HBCUs and you come to work assuming that everybody starts in the same place that you started and everyone has the same training and background that you've had. And then you start to talk to young people and you realize, especially from diverse backgrounds, that They may not have, right? They don't know things that we think are simple. And so how do I help bring and usher that next generation along um, is a great way to help. So I think finding your small, your lane and not trying to compare your lane to someone else's um, is how you remain active. But knowing that you are the solution is not for you to sit on the sidelines and watch someone else. And then I would say, you know, Lori took all mine, but I'll add (laughs) I'll add in, you know, a key thing that she picked up that she talked about just briefly. I was at a conference recently and, you know, realized that there's such thing as a first generation corporate America type of person or profile. So I fit within that. Right. Because no one else in my family has ever been in a corporate environment. So very good point of befriending, especially those newer folks that this is their first experience in being in corporate America. They don't know, you know, they may not know some of the ins and outs. They won't know that at all. But the other thing that I would say is I'm building relationships with people who don't think like me, right, at at all. And so I recommend that that's one way too, because it expands your knowledge um, as well as that other person's. And then that may in turn direct you to an ERG or employee resource group or all the other things that Lori mentioned. Those are all great points. The thing that comes to my mind continually on this is I think it's so useful. And I, I, and I talk to other businesses in different sectors frequently. And, you know, sometimes I'll hear them say like, well, you know, what are y'all doing on DEI? Because we haven't started that yet. Or um, like, we're trying to benchmark off somebody else. What are y'all doing? And I, I think, you know, 
I almost feel like there's almost sometimes for folks a paralysis in that they're being they're behind. Yeah. Uh, there's so much there's so much urgency around this sometimes, and uh, people want to see you know impacts. And I think you know to begin to move the needle, I think it's really a good idea to kind of first off help kind of. Cr- reduce the idea that DEI is something else and, and that it's this, this new thing. You know, we, we've been actually working on these elements for many, many years. We just, you know, sometimes brand it differently, but people think, okay, now we have to start this. And I'm like, well, maybe you can reflect back internally on things that we've been doing, data we've been collecting um, to kind of determine where we are on this continuum as an organization and as you are personally. Um, you know, you see job postings everywhere for DEI, you know, directors and all this kind of stuff, like it's a new thing. And it is in many ways. I'm not saying it's not. But um, I think sometimes that also trips the wire of people feeling like they're behind or they're not doing it when, in fact, there there may be some really rich body of work and evidence and structures in place. And it's about how does how do we fit in this continuum of this discussion um, and, 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 and then find our way forward that way. But it, it just really makes me nervous when I hear people feel like they're, they're losing ground or they're not doing anything. Um, when I find it hard to believe, when you talk to them, you realize they're doing all kinds of things. They just have not viewed it through that lens. And, and it, it's just kind of a, a complicated way that we look at things sometimes. And uh, sometimes it throws up more barriers than we might think it does just because of the way we've branded something or, or, or things like that. Yeah, those are all, all really great points. And I think like we mentioned, you know, it is a continuum and it's a journey and, and just like we see where our organization is on that journey, the action you take is going to be based on your own. So maybe that looks like doing some unlearning before before you take any sort of actions or, or moving on from that into the next kind of phase, so to speak. Perfect. Well, on that note, Elena, Anson, and Lori, thank you all so much for, for speaking with us today. How can our listeners get in touch with you after today's episode if they'd like to reach out? For me, you can find me on LinkedIn, Lori Spicer Robertson. I don't know if there's another Lori Spicer Robertson. So you can go there and I will be sure to add you as a connection. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I'm Anson Green, uh, anson.green at tyson.com. And I would love to get emails from individuals that are working to help upskill uh, lower skilled individuals, those with limited English, new Americans uh, in their companies, because that's my hobby in my career. And uh, I can be found on LinkedIn, too, and I'm a pretty avid poster there. So just look up Anson Green, A-N-S-O-N, green like the color. All right. And then uh, Elena Doyle. Um, I don't think that there are a lot of Elenas out there. A-L-A-I-N-A, Doyle, D-O-Y-L-E, on LinkedIn. For more insights on equitable learning and to download a complimentary job aid from Training Industry Courses, Building Diversity and Inclusion Training Program, visit the show notes for this episode at trainingindustry.com slash trainingindustrypodcast. And if you enjoyed listening to this episode, let us know. Rate and review us on your favorite podcast app. Until next time. If you have feedback about this episode or would like to suggest a topic for a future program, email us at info at or use the contact us page at trainingindustry.com. Thanks for listening to the Training Industry Podcast.